I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A daring escape that unlocks true love. She's desperate to be with him at any cost. An impoverished inventor turns shock into sales. Nearly every household in America owned a jar. An explosive mistake brings the nation to the brink. There was this huge explosion, and this blast sent debris 1,500 feet up in the air. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. South Bend, Indiana. This Midwestern city derives its name from its location on the southernmost curve of the St. Joseph's River. And just a few blocks from its banks is the center for history. Here, items ranging from an antique apple press to a steel gas valve document the town's rise from trading post to hub of industry. But there's one fragile object that stands out from this heavy machinery. It's about 24 inches tall. It has molded hair and a full outfit on it. This old China doll may look innocent. But according to Deputy Executive Director Brandon Anderson, a toy just like this was central to a bizarre tale of deception and intrigue. Nobody knew what was going on here. And when the truth came out, it completely shocked everyone. What role did a lifelike doll play? in one of the region's most mystifying scandals. It's 1921 in the small town of Hammond, Indiana. Frank and Hazel McNally are a happy newlywed couple, anxious to start a family. Frank especially wanted to be a father and wanted children with Hazel. Just weeks into their marriage, Hazel surprises her husband with good news. Hazel told Frank that she was pregnant. They were both very excited about it, and they made an announcement for the entire neighborhood. As the pregnancy progresses, Hazel, a trained nurse, insists on handling every aspect of the preparations herself. She even tells her husband that she plans to deliver the baby on her own, without a doctor. Frank felt very comfortable that Hazel knew what she was doing, so he let her take care of everything. Months later, Hazel goes into labor. 
Frank anxiously waits in the couple's living room until his wife finally emerges with an unexpected announcement. She had given birth to twins, a boy and a girl. Frank is overjoyed with the news, but the feeling is short-lived. Hazel tells her husband that she's detected a physical defect in both babies. She said that they were frail and weak, and especially had uh, weak eyes. In fact, Hazel claims that the children's condition is so dire, they must be kept in a darkened room and remain undisturbed. Frank is devastated, but his wife reassures him that she can care for the twins. Frank went along with it. He knew that his wife had the best interest of the babies at heart. On the rare occasion that the infants leave the house, Frank watches his wife take extreme precautions to protect their weak eyes from the sun. They always had a black cloth over their face, and of course they were bundled up as well. So nobody really ever got to see the twins. Then, one day in the spring of 1922, Hazel puts the babies down for a nap and announces she is going out to run an errand. Alone with the children at last, Frank is overcome by a growing desire. Frank had always trusted his wife to take care of the children, but he felt that he should have some more involvement in their life. Frank reasons that it couldn't hurt to simply lay eyes upon them. So he heads to the nursery, but what he finds defies explanation. Frank pulled back that sheet and made a horrifying discovery. There were only two dolls there. When Hazel returns home, Frank confronts her, demanding to know where the babies are and why there are two dolls in their place. But instead of giving him an answer, Hazel lashes out. She started throwing items at him. This was completely like a childhood tantrum. Bewildered by Hazel's behavior, Frank fears the worst. Were the children kidnapped? What could have possibly happened? Hazel refuses to explain the situation. So Frank decides he must call the police. They went to the McNally home, and they arrested her. At the station, authorities threatened to charge Hazel with the murder of the twins. Finally, Hazel breaks down and makes an astonishing confession. Hazel claimed that she never gave birth to any babies. They were always dolls. Dolls just like this one, today on display at the Center for History in South Bend, Indiana. Doubtful investigators press the nurse. What could have possibly motivated her to carry out such a preposterous scheme? Hazel announced that she was sterile and unable to have children. But Frank wanted to be a father so bad, so she put together this hoax to make her husband happy. A distraught Frank refuses to believe the claims and maintains the tale is simply an outrageous cover-up. Frank believed that Hazel concocted this scheme just to not be charged for the murder of her own children. So authorities keep Hazel in custody while they dig deeper into her bizarre story. The police looked high and low for these children. There were never any bodies found, and nobody had ever really seen them before. There was no way to prove that these twins ever existed. In October, Hazel is released. This was one of the strangest and most complex lies ever told. It completely shocked everyone. 
In the aftermath, the McNally couple goes their separate ways, and Hazel destroys the distressing decoys. Today, at the Center for History in South Bend, this China doll stands as a reminder of one of the most bizarre frauds this region has ever witnessed. During the 18th century, the discovery of coal and oil in Morgantown, West Virginia, put this city on the map. Today, this mineral-rich heritage is preserved upon the campus of West Virginia University at the Royce J. and Carolyn B. Watts Museum. Within its halls, rugged equipment and aging machinery honor the laborers who have extracted the area's natural resources. But furrowed away from these powerful tools of the trade is a much more delicate item. This artifact is made of glass and has a purplish tint and is approximately two inches in diameter. As curator Danielle Petrak asserts, this simple jar holds a sensational tale of one entrepreneur's driving ambition and astounding ingenuity. What this man did to sell his product stunned everyone. What substance did this vessel once contain? And to what extraordinary lengths did its creator go to make it a mainstay of American medicine cabinets? 1859, Brooklyn, New York. Robert Chesbro is a hard-working chemist attempting to eke out a living. The ambitious 22-year-old runs a kerosene business, yet times in his trade are tough. The popular lighting oil is derived from whale fat, and overhunting has depleted the supply. Unable to satisfy his customers' orders, the helpless chemist is slowly going broke. So Chesbro needed to come up with a plan to make some money, and he needed it fast. Then, in September, Chesbro hears of a fortuitous development. 400 miles away, in Titusville, Pennsylvania, an abundant new source of kerosene has just been discovered. Crude oil. Hoping this windfall can reinvigorate his business, Chesbro spends the last of his savings on a train ticket west. But when he arrives, the chemist is captivated by a bizarre sight— an oil worker dabbing a thick black sludge on his skin. He wanted to know why in the world someone would be smearing this dirty goop all over themselves. The man tells Chesbro that the foul-smelling gunk is called rod wax, a byproduct of drilling for crude oil that often gums up the machinery. But he claims the sludge possesses an uncanny property. When applied to cuts and burns, it helped their wounds heal faster. Chesbro was stunned by this. His wheels start turning. The chemist realizes that if he can take this worthless waste product and sell it as medicine, the profit margins could be astronomical. Intent on transforming the goop into gold, he collects buckets full and heads back to Brooklyn. But first, he must somehow verify the oil man's claims. So the chemist makes a drastic decision to become a human guinea pig. Chesbro tested it on himself by cutting his skin and then applying the substance to his wounds. And incredibly, the self-abuse soon pays off. He found out that the rod wax did actually have healing properties. Chesbro is elated, but he knows that the goop's grimy appearance and noxious smell pose a marketing challenge. There's absolutely no way anyone would buy this black sludge. 
So, for years, the chemist experiments with the gunk until he hits on a filtration process that refines it into a clear, odorless gel. Finally, by 1870, he's ready to introduce his wonder solve to the world. Chesbro took his product to stores and pharmacies and was ready to make millions off of his miracle cure. But he was not prepared for the shock that came next. Not a single druggist believes the product possesses any curative qualities. They thought that he was just another snake oil salesman trying to make a quick buck. Chesbro is devastated. And to top it all off, he's nearly bankrupt. So how far will the downtrodden inventor go to prove his wonder cure really works? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In 1870, down-on-his-luck chemist Robert Chesbro has concocted an amazing bomb that heals cuts and bruises in record time. But when he tries to sell his remarkable solve, pharmacists refuse to believe his claims. So how far will the inventor go to prove his remedy really works? Drawing inspiration from tactics utilized by snake oil salesmen, Chesbro resolves to hawk the product himself. Chesbro decided to travel from town to town and put on a dramatic show to draw interest in his product. And he believes he has just the way to bring in the crowds. Shock value. Each presentation, onlookers watch in horror as he stabs, slices, and burns his skin. It was a gruesome performance. Once he's grabbed the horrified crowd's attention, Chesbro brandishes his magical ointment. He applies the cure-all to his wounds while extolling its virtues and shows off the faint traces of injuries from previous demonstrations. 
and the crowd was impressed by how much faster his wounds healed over time than they expected. Chesbro concludes each presentation with a sly bit of marketing. He invites spectators to take a small jar of the remedy home at no charge. Salesmen had never given away free samples in mass quantities like this before. Crowds snap up the freebie. And when the sample runs out, the public demands their local pharmacists begin carrying the product. In 1872, Chesbro trademarks a name for his wonder jelly, a combination of the German word for water, Wasser, and Alain, the Greek word for oil. He dubbed his new product Vaseline. Chesbro packages Vaseline in embossed jars like this one on display at the Watts Museum. And within two years, the product is selling at a rate of one jar per minute, turning its once-broke inventor into a millionaire. Today at the Watts Museum, one of Chesbro's earliest jars of Vaseline remains as a token of a man who sacrificed nearly everything, including his own blood, to create one of the world's most popular healing ointments. Spanning six floors and 275,000 square feet, the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh is the premier institution documenting the Iron City's spirit of innovation. But among the medical novelties and feats of civic ingenuity is one five-foot-long wooden object that seems not to have broken new ground, but ridden upon it. It has graceful lines shaped like a swan its runners are lined with steel, some of them pockmarked with bullet holes. As President Andy Masick asserts, the scars seared into this antique sled marked the violent conclusion of one of the region's most notorious love affairs. It's a tragic tale of murder and mayhem. Who rode in this sleigh? And what incredible lengths did they go to in order to be together? 1901, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Allegheny County Jail is an impenetrable granite fortress, housing the city's most dangerous criminals. But one caring visitor strives to bring its inmates comfort, mother of four and wife of the warden, Kate Sofel. From the family's on-site residence, Mrs. Sofel makes the short walk to the cell blocks every day. Kate was known to be a compassionate woman. She read poems to the prisoners and to help them with their stay in a pretty awful place. One day, the 34-year-old comes to a cell holding two new inmates, siblings Jack and Ed Biddle. Jack was clean-cut and well-spoken. His younger brother, Ed, was devilishly handsome. By all appearances, they were unlikely criminals. But the innocent-looking men have been convicted of murder. They were both sentenced to hang. Hoping to give the boys some solace during their last few months of life, Kate reads to them from a book of poetry. To her surprise, the younger of the two, 24-year-old Ed, responds enthusiastically. Ed reveals to Kate that he loves poetry, and as she reads to Ed, he hangs on her every word. Kate begins making daily visits to Ed's cell, where the two share much more than stanzas and verse. Ed and Kate grew very close. To Kate, Ed appears to be sensitive, 
quiet, thoughtful. She sees a vulnerable young man, not a convicted murderer. And as the illicit relationship develops, Kate confides her most personal secret. Kate revealed to Ed that she was unhappy in her marriage. She didn't like the way her husband, the warden, treated the children. After months of intimate rendezvous, Kate can no longer ignore her forbidden feelings. She's head over heels in love. Ed admits the same, and the two are overjoyed. But their happiness is weighed down by the crushing reality of the inmate's fate. With his execution date set for February, Sofal has just a few months left with her new beau, a fact she's unwilling to come to terms with. Kate is desperate to be with him at any cost. So the warden's wife comes up with a daring plan to save her secret lover and secure their future. Kate will help them break out of the jail. They'll head north and make for Canada. The plan is simple. Ed will fake an illness, requiring the attention of a guard. Then the Biddle brothers will overpower him and take his keys. But this strategy requires one very important tool, a gun. Soon Kate finds a creative way to put this piece of the puzzle into place. She smuggles two 32 caliber revolvers to Ed and Jack, hidden in the folds of her skirts. Finally, by mid-January of 1902, preparations are complete. Kate Sofel readies herself for the perilous escape. Mrs. Sofel, she had everything to lose. Her family, her reputation, maybe her life. At 4 a.m. on the morning of January 30th, the Biddle brothers put their plan into motion. As Ed feigns an illness, Jack calls out to the on-duty guard. Then he's greeted by the pistol-wielding Biddle boys. Ed and his brother pin the guard against the bars. They grab his keys. With their guns drawn, the prisoners round up the other two floor guards. After locking all three in a cell, Ed and Jack flee for the exit, where Kate Sofel is waiting. They dash out onto the street into the night. With snow blanketing the ground, the outlaws' progress is slow. But it's not long before they find a way to expedite their journey north. They find a farmhouse, and in the barn is a horse and sleigh. It's the same sleigh on display at the Heinz History Center. After hitching up the horse, Kate Sofel and her fugitive lover are on their way to freedom. They're breaking as fast as they can. Are they going to make it to Canada? The gang seems to have successfully evaded authorities. But then they spot ominous figures ahead. The party is surrounded by police. There's a shootout. Bullets are flying everywhere, zinging off the sleigh. In the midst of the fracas, the escape party is thrown from the sleigh, and Ed suffers two gunshot wounds. As her true love lay dying in the snow, a grief-stricken Kate makes a drastic decision. Mrs. Sofel pleaded with Ed, shoot me, kill me, I can't go on. Ed takes his revolver, puts it to her chest, and pulls the trigger. Then he turns the gun on himself, as does Jack. The Biddle brothers die from their injuries, but the hand of fate intervenes on behalf of Kate Sofel. Mrs. Sofel's still alive. The bullet was deflected by her corset and lodged in the muscle of her chest. 
Sofal spends the next few weeks recovering from her wounds. In the aftermath, she is sentenced to two years in prison for abetting the Biddle brothers' escape. Kate Sofal has lost everything. Ed Biddle, her husband, her family, her reputation, nearly lost her life. After her release, Kate lives out the remainder of her years under an assumed name. And today, this sleigh at the Heinz History Center serves as a reminder of one woman's unwavering devotion to set her love free. Reno, Nevada. Situated in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, this storied city is actually further west than Los Angeles, California. Chronicling the past of this historic frontier town is the state's oldest cultural institution, the Nevada Historical Society. Its collection honors the fortune seekers who came here in search of riches, first in the silver mines and later in the casinos. But one crumbling object within this collection speaks to a different pursuit, survival. The artifact is dated to the mid-19th century, approximately five inches in length, and it's quite rusted. As curator Christine Johnson contends, this weapon is linked to a near-fatal struggle in the life of a literary lion. This is a tale of anger, bravado, and brilliant chicanery. To whom did this revolver belong? And what dramatic event nearly robbed the world of his talent? 1864, Virginia City, Nevada. The Territorial Enterprise is one of the largest newspapers in town. And its star reporter is a brash 29-year-old known for his piercing wit. His name is Samuel Clemens. He was considered quite the SOB of his day. In May, Clemens is placed in charge of the paper and wastes no time making the editorial page his own. On his second day at the helm, the opinionated writer pens a column attacking a man named James Laird, the co-owner of rival newspaper, the Virginia City Union. Clemens accuses him of failing to make good on a promised charitable donation. When Laird lays eyes upon the piece, he is incensed. Laird became furious with Clemens. He called the remarks libelous. So three days later, he publishes his own editorial, decrying Clemens as a despicable liar. But the reporter is convinced his claim is true and is stung by the personal insult. He immediately writes Laird privately, insisting on a full retraction. But Laird refuses. So Clemens decides to defend his honor in a matter befitting the frontier West, a duel. And Laird accepted his challenge. The duel was set for the next morning. Yet behind Clemens's bravado, he harbors a secret. He had never been involved in a duel prior to this. Like most Virginia City residents, he keeps weapons on hand for protection, including this pistol on display at the Nevada Historical Society but he's never actually bothered to learn how to shoot. Most often in a duel, there's only time for each person to get off one shot. Clemens doesn't have a chance if he can't hit the target. Luckily, he knows a man who can give him some pointers. His friend and coworker, Steve Gillis. Gillis had been in a few duels before and had come out the winner. So Clemens asks the experienced marksman to act as his second. 
a partner who ensures that the duel's conditions are fair. And Gillis agrees. On the day of the gunfight, the pair meet for last-minute target practice. Gillis instructs Clemens to take aim at a nearby piece of wood. Clemens raised his gun in an awkward style and closed his eyes right before pulling the trigger. The bullet flies wide of the target. And when he takes another shot, he misses again. A wave of dread washes over the reporter. He felt that continuing with the duel would be like suicide. Gillis said to Clemens, give me your gun, let me show you how to shoot it. Then he spies a bird 30 yards away. As the bird flew by, Gillis cocked the gun, he fired and blew the head right off the bird. Clemens rushes over to examine the target. Then the men hear footsteps approaching. It's none other than James Laird, accompanied by his second. Sensing an opportunity to help his friend, Gillis conceals the weapon. And it's Laird's second that really notices the state of the decapitated bird. He immediately takes Gillis aside. He was astonished at the marksmanship and said, who shot this bird? Thinking quickly, Gillis responds with an outlandish lie. Gillis said Clemens had shot the bird. The stunned second asks how often Clemens can hit such a mark. Once again, Gillis fibs. Gillis responded that Clemens could shoot that way four out of five times. That information knocked his socks off. When Laird learns of his competitor's prowess, he decides to save his skin. He took back all the harsh things that he wrote about him. The duel was effectively canceled. Gillis's impromptu ruse worked perfectly. Without his quick thinking, there's a very good chance that Clemens may have been killed that day. Soon after, Clemens leaves the newspaper business behind and begins to pursue more narrative storytelling. In 1876, he publishes a book called The Adventures of Tom Sawyer that goes on to become a literary classic. And he became forever known by his pen name, Mark Twain. And this gun on display at the Nevada Historical Society is the rusty reminder of the close call that almost robbed the nation of one of its finest creative talents. Miami, Florida. In 1944, a doctor in this sun-drenched city invented copper-toned suntan lotion. And just a few blocks west of the sand and surf is an institution that celebrates the spirit of hometown innovation, the Patricia and Philip Frost Museum of Science. This facility features a 230-seat planetarium, a raptor rehabilitation center, and an indoor-outdoor sea lab. But amidst these large and impressive installations is a more primitive set of artifacts. This is a collection of 12 rocks made of limestone, and there are a few that have what look like straight lines. According to collections manager Kevin Arrow, these stones once sent seismic waves through the archaeological community. They are a possible clue to a lost civilization. What maverick scientist discovered these rocks? And what ancient puzzle did they promise to solve? 1967, Miami, Florida. 65-year-old J. Manson Valentine is an internationally renowned scientist whose passion for ancient cities has taken him from the mountaintops of Machu Picchu to the caves of the Yucatan. 
He's traveling around the world looking for lost civilizations. Yet one legendary site holds a potent spell over the scientist. The lost city of Atlantis. If you study lost civilizations, Atlantis is sort of the holy grail. According to the Greek philosopher Plato, Atlantis was an island utopia that flourished until around 9,000 BC when it was submerged by a violent flood. For centuries, historians interpreted Plato's tale of destruction as a parable for the pitfalls of hubris. But some, like Valentine, believe that Atlantis was real and that its underwater ruins are waiting to be discovered. If an archaeologist or researcher were to actually find Atlantis, it would be sort of a, a find of the century. Then, one day, Valentine stumbles upon a curious book penned by an enigmatic psychic named Edgar Cayce. Edgar Cayce is a sort of Nostradamus-like figure from the 20th century. Cayce foretold the 1929 stock market crash, as well as the year World War II would begin. And it seems he also took an interest in the legendary lost city. Edgar Cayce made a prediction that in 1968 or 1969, Atlantis would rise out of the ocean in the area that we know as Bimini and the Bahamas, right off the coast of Florida. The claim leaves Valentine reeling. If Casey's prediction is accurate, Atlantis should be waiting to rise again somewhere in his own backyard. He feels like he's in the right place at the right time. Valentine travels to the Bahamas in search of the ruins but comes up empty. Then, on September 2nd, during a solo dive off North Bimini Island, Valentine spots an unusual formation on the ocean floor. It's an underwater structure about 1,600 feet long and sort of a J-shape, which very much appears to be man-made. The formation looks to be comprised of hundreds of uniform rectangular stones. The rocks appear to be a sort of pavement, a sort of a street. The scientist can't believe his eyes. It's such an expansive site that directly coincides with Casey's predictions, 1968, right off the coast of Bimini. And he thinks it could be the remnants of an ancient civilization, not just a road. Valentine collects rock samples for analysis, the same specimens housed at the Miami Frost Museum of Science. He tests the fragments and determines that they are about 12,000 years old, consistent with the time frame in Plato's writing. Valentine is convinced he's found Atlantis. And when he announces his discovery to the press, it sets off a frenzy of excitement. So you have people coming from all over the world wanting to conduct research and get in on the discovery. But not everyone is convinced. Several experts question the nature of Valentine's find. Chief among the skeptics is a geologist named Eugene Shin. He went on record essentially saying that these are not man-made rocks, but they're naturally formed beach rock. According to Shin, beach rock is formed when sand and silt harden over time. And that mixture, combined with the motion of the tides, forms slabs that appear to mimic masonry. Shin soon gathers his own samples for testing. Dr. Shin has the rocks carbon dated, and he discovers that they're only 4,000 years old. 
This time frame falls 7,000 years after Atlantis's supposed destruction, further bolstering Shin's theory that the stones are nothing more than a natural formation. Yet this information fails to sway Valentine. Dr. Valentine felt that that was not conclusive evidence, that more research needed to be done. Valentine never wavers in his conviction and goes to his grave in 1994, believing he found the lost city. Today, these rock samples at the Miami Frost Museum of Science speak to the enduring legend of Atlantis and the hope that it is still out there, waiting to be discovered. New Mexico. In 1945, this state was the site of the U.S. military's first atomic bomb test. The history of this explosive technology is documented at the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History in Albuquerque. Among the innovations on display are a Genie air-to-air -air rocket, a section of a ballistic missile, and a direct flow sampler used to detect radioactive fallout. But tucked away in the archives is a set of mangled artifacts that appear to be nothing more than scrap metal. They range in size from a shoebox up to a bread basket. They're discolored, and they look like they came from a bad car accident. According to curator David Hoover, these battered fragments are an eerie vestige of one of New Mexico's most terrifying events. This artifact tells the story of the day that New Mexico almost met its doomsday. What are these twisted remnants? And what part did they play in an unfathomable military accident? It's 1957 in Texas. The United States and the Soviet Union are locked in the grips of the Cold War. With tensions reaching a boiling point, both countries are rapidly developing their nuclear arsenals. The weapons were getting more powerful. There was more of them. And it was very dangerous at that time. On May 22nd, a B-36 bomber takes off from El Paso en route to Albuquerque, carrying a crew of 13. Their mission is to transport one highly explosive piece of cargo to Kirtland Air Force Base for routine maintenance. On board was a Mark 17 hydrogen bomb. Measuring 24 feet long and weighing 42,000 pounds, this 10-megaton device is capable of creating total and complete annihilation. The Mark 17 was the largest bomb ever created by the United States. It was 600 times more powerful than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. The man tasked with tending to the weapon is crew member Lieutenant Robert Karp. Karp was trained as a navigator, but on this trip, he was put in charge of the Mark 17 hydrogen bomb. The short flight passes from Texas through southern New Mexico without a hitch. As the plane begins its descent, Lieutenant Karp heads to the B-36's bomb bay to complete an essential task. Military protocol states that the bomb's locking pin, a device that ensures the weapon's safety during transport, must be removed upon landing. The reason why you pulled it out it was in case you had to jettison the bomb in an emergency, you could. Due to the Mark 17 size, Karp strains to reach the locking pin located on top of the massive shell. Lieutenant Karp was leaning over the bomb to pull the pin. Just as he pulled the pin, there was some turbulence. Karp is thrown about the bay. Then, a safety cable attached to his uniform snags another lever. 
the bomb release was pulled. In an instant, the giant nuke drops to the floor, landing directly on top of the bomb bay doors. And the next thing you know, this bomb ripped the bomb bay doors off and headed to the ground. The lieutenant watches helplessly as the terrifying reality suddenly sinks in. The largest weapon the world has ever seen is dropping on New Mexico. Just outside Albuquerque, a pilot named E.E. E. Gardner is transporting a patient to the hospital in his small plane. In the distance, he can make out a giant B-36 bomber making its descent near the military's Sandia base. Then, all of a sudden, the earth beneath him erupts. There was this huge explosion, and this blast sent debris 1,500 feet up in the air. As he attempts to dodge the rubble, a panicked gardener realizes a bomb has just gone off, and he has an inkling it's no ordinary explosive. Many of the residents of Albuquerque had heard rumors of nuclear weapons being stored in the Sandia base. When he lands, Gardner tries to find out more about the blast, but the military responds with silence. The Air Force immediately clamped down on it, and it became secret, and everybody was involved was told not to talk about it. It seems the circumstances of the incident will forever remain hidden. That is, until 1986. Almost 30 years after the event, an Albuquerque newspaper obtains formally classified documents that finally reveal the truth behind the mysterious explosion. They learn the nation's most powerful atomic weapon landed in a stretch of uninhabited desert five miles south of the city. Surrounding the impact site were hundreds of tiny shell fragments, including these on display at the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History. However, the damage was limited to a 12 by 25-foot crater, and there were no casualties. The news leaves many wondering why the destruction was not on par with previous nuclear detonations in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The answer lies in strict military protocol. In peacetime, bombs are not transported with their nuclear core intact. The nuclear capsule was on the plane but was not in the bomb, thus preventing a nuclear explosion when the bomb hit the ground. However, the deadly nuke still contained enough conventional explosives to create the spectacular blast witnessed by Gardner. If the bomb landed in Albuquerque, it would have made a mess. It would have taken out several buildings. It could have killed 100 or more people. And today, these pieces of shrapnel from the Mark 17 remain housed at the National Museum of Nuclear Science, a frightening reminder of the day the horrors of war were dropped in America's backyard. From a nuclear nightmare to a show-stopping salesman, an illicit love affair to a legendary lost city. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum.